0: Don't answer that. What's the deal
1: with our cheese? The cheese is from Wisconsin. Okay, so
2: what? Ain't cheese just cheese? Billy, I'm from Wisconsin. Not to be rude, Wes, but who cares? Wisconsin cows make for better cheese. Aren't cows just cows? Don't they have cows out in California? Wisconsin cows are better because of the ice.
0: Uh... Ain't there four ice in California?
2: Ice, not eyes. The ice is the difference. Do cows skate or something? Do they play hockey too? Oh, blessed Billy.
0: How does they put them their skates on them?
2: Jim's Razorback Pizza uses cheese from ice hockey playing cows from Wisconsin. Eat Jim's
0: Razorback dot com. Hey, welcome back to the Empire Builders podcast. Dave Young, along with Steve Semple here. And we're talking about the Leatherman tool, which is, man, I'm going to let you just run with this because it's like somebody that finally made a Swiss Army knife useful.
1: Leatherman was founded by Tim Leatherman, hence the name. Wait,
0: that's his name? That's his name.
1: I know when I first saw the Leatherman, I thought, oh, this was made by some guy who worked with leather and things along that lines. But no, Leatherman is his last name. Oh, how cool is that? Yeah. So it was founded by Tim Leatherman. And in 1982, they made their first sale of $175. The next year, they sold 200 tools. The following year, 30,000 tools. And two years after that, so basically, you know, in 1986, four years after that first sale, they were doing 160,000 tools. Amazing. Amazing. And then in 1993, basically 10 years after that first sale, they hit the 1 million tool mark. And they had been basically growing at a 50% a year growth. And today, they do about 3 million tools a year. And the business is estimated to be worth $100 million. And it's still 100% owned by the founders.
0: Oh, no kidding. We're recording, you know, we can see each other on camera. But I have this Leatherman. I don't know. I've had this since probably their early days. I don't know if it's got a date on it.
1: Yeah, they're cool tools. So in many ways, they feel like this real overnight success where they go from one tool to 200 tools or 30,000 to 160 to 3 million. That first sale that they did, Mm -hmm. it took them seven years to make that first sale happen. Seven years of zero sales. So here's what ended up happening. So Tim grew up in Portland, Oregon, and he got a degree in mechanical engineering from Oregon State. And at university, he met the love of his life, chow. and after graduating, he moved with her back to Vietnam because she was Vietnamese. So while in Vietnam, he noticed that there was all these kids that had these roadside stands that could repair just about anything. And he realized he couldn't repair things. And so he looked at it and goes, my degree is really not practical. I really need to figure out some practicality. So he started taking things apart and fixing them. Now, just before Vietnam fell... He managed to get himself and his wife and their family out and they returned to Oregon. But once they settled in Oregon, they decided, he and his wife, he and Chow decided they wanted to travel Europe. So in 1975, they decided to travel around Europe, especially Eastern Europe. And they had heard the best place to buy a really cheap ass car was Amsterdam. So they went to Amsterdam and they paid $300 for this Fiat. And the way he describes this Fiat, he says, think about a Volkswagen van And reduce it down by two-thirds, and that's your Fiat. (laughs) So it's this little little (laughs) tiny vehicle. So they do this 10-month trip traveling around 17 countries, and he had this little, like you were saying, Swiss Army knife, this little Boy Scout pocket knife, right, Swiss Army style. And he used it for everything for fixing things. And this beat up old Fiat needed a lot of repairs. But what he noticed was there was a lot of times he needed pliers. And there was also times when he was repairing the car, he noted there was deficiencies with the knife. So every time there was a deficiency, he had a notebook, he started to write it down. Wrote down all the deficiencies with this knife. So in 1976, he returns to Oregon and he decides to make a tool. He asks his wife, can I make one? Can I make a tool? Can I take some time off, make a tool? She asks him, how long is it gonna take? He says, a month. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so she went to work to support him, and he went and made a tool, and he started in his brother-in-law's garage using scrap metal and things from other tools, and he'd make one to discard it because it was too big, and he'd make another, and basically it took him two years to make the first knife. <laughs> so two years in, he's got a knife. His idea was, I'm going to make the knife, and I'm going to sell the patent.
0: Okay, sell the patent. There you yeah,
1: go. so he approaches this knife company, Gerber, and they did an evaluation, And they got back to him a few weeks later, and they said, Tim, not interested. This is not a knife. This is a tool. It's not what we do. We make knives. This is a tool. And he thought to himself, well, these guys might not be right. So he approached every knife company in the United States. None of them were interested. So he thought, well, you know what? Maybe these knife guys are right. Maybe it's not a knife. Maybe it's a tool. He starts approaching tool companies. He approached every tool company in the United States. And what they said to him is, this is not a tool. This is a gadget, and gadgets don't sell. In 1983, so if you think about this, he started on the tool in 1983. Seven years later, he goes to a knife show. And at the knife show, he sells
0: one. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, somebody bought one.
1: So around this time, he decided, maybe it's time to get a real job. Tim Leatherman found a job selling welding products. And it was a great job for him because he was meeting manufacturers and he shared this knife with all of them and asked for advice. So he's now almost seven years in and a friend of his, Stephen Berliner, buddy from university, steps in and says, let's be partners. There's a few things we still have not tried. And Steve's dad had a manufacturing business and Steve's education was on the business side. And Steve's idea was let's get an order before we go into big manufacturing. And what they realized is they needed to make 4,000 knives to make some money. So they started going, okay, who buys a lot of knives? Well, the U.S. Army does. So they approached the U.S. Army. The U.S. Army said, no. They said, well, AT&T has all these technicians on the road. No. They approached mail order catalogs next. And at the time, there were 280 mail order catalogs and they got 279 no's.
0: Okay. bet I know who gave me yes.
1: The last one was in Seattle, not far from Portland. So they hopped in the vehicle and they drove to Portland and they paid them a visit and they showed them the prototype. And the price of the Leatherman that they were gonna sell to the catalog was $40. So the catalog would have to sell it for 80. And instead of saying no, they actually did them a really big favor. And what they said was, can you make it less expensive and less complex? rather than just saying no. So okay. Tim goes back to the drawing board, and six months later, they can offer it to the catalog at $24. Are we good? And they said, yeah, that's a great price. Will you take $2,000? They said no. <laughs> but Cabela's, Right. Who you were guessing?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, so there you are. Ring the bell for Dave.
0: I grew up where Cabela's headquarters was. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I'm sure that's where I got this one.
1: Cool. So Cabela's bought 500 tools, $12,000 worth, and they made this purchase in May of 1983. And it was for delivery in late December. So after eight hard years, they finally have an order of more than one, but they're still like 1,500 short of how many they need to make it reasonable, right? But one of the small things that they did that Tim Leatherman feels... a big difference was what they called the product they called it a pocket survival tool
0: stay tuned we're going to wrap up this story and tell you how to apply this lesson to your business right after this
2: two words lead flow if you want to grow your business lead flow is well not everything but it sure can feel that way you feel the need The need for leads. And then there's the gnawing questions that plague you whenever you try to boost lead flow. Are you targeting the right customer? Are you saying the right things? Are you advertising in the right places? Are you spending too much or too little? And the ever-present, how can I best use social media? What if you could get those questions answered definitively in 90 minutes? You'd no longer feel the need for leads because now you'd know how to get them. That's what Empire Builders is offering you right now for free and with a guarantee to boot. Go to empirebuildersprogram.com, book a 90-minute Zoom meeting with the Empire Building expert and boom, questions answered, problems solved. We'll give you the real answers, guaranteed. Guaranteed. Yes, our famous no pitching and no bitching guarantee. First, we won't pitch you at all, seriously.
1: If you want to work with us beyond our meeting, You'll have to explicitly ask about moving forward. And the bitchin' part?
2: If you're not satisfied with the answers, say the word. And I'll pay you cold hard cash for your wasted time. No hard feelings. Now that's a guarantee.
1: Look, Empire Builders take action. If lead flow is an issue for you, take action on it.
2: Book your Zoom meeting at empirebuildersprogram.com.
0: Let's pick up our story where we left off and trust me, you haven't missed a thing. And this appealed to the survivalist market, right? Which is a tribe of
1: people. Yeah. And it appealed to your extreme camping outdoors person, right? So they have this order for 500 tools and in the early winter, they get a telephone call. We're sold out, we'd like 250 more tools. Then they got a call in early December and they said, yeah, those 250 are sold, could we order 500 more? A week later, those 500 are gone. Here's an order for 750. A week later, 1,000 tools. Now, these weren't all coming from Cabela. What they noticed was the mail order catalogs all watch each other. Mm. And so when one saw something selling, all the others were jumping on it. And finally, it was selling like crazy.
0: And I know back in those days, Cabela's was printing at one point. I don't know if it was the mid-80s or not, but probably getting pretty close they were printing more catalog pages every year than JCPenney.
1: Oh, is that right? I had no idea. So this is in the
0: catalog days, right? This is the catalog A days.
1: Yes, yes, it was. So again, in 1983, they do that first sale of 200 tools. 1984, they did 30,000 tools and turned a profit. 1993, 10 years after that first Cabela order, they're doing a million tools. And then in 1996, They built this big facility for doing all the manufacturing in Portland. And one of the things that Tim Leatherman is very proud of is the number of really good paying jobs he created in Portland. Because the Leatherman is not cheap. It is made in the U.S., doing U.S. labor. And one third of their sales are exports to around the world. It's a real testament to what they did. And and look, they also hit a big bump in the road. 9-11 was really tough on them. Well, because what happened is you couldn't travel. There's
0: millions of them getting taken by the TSA and thrown away at airports.
1: Yeah, and if you're not carrying it with you all the time, you kind of forget about them. So they had to introduce some new products and do some changes, right?
0: I had a mini Leatherman tool that I loved that I carried in my pocket all the time, like a tiny one. Yeah. It got taken in the first flight I took after 9-11, lost it.
1: Yeah. And if you're not carrying it, people aren't seeing it in a little pouch and things along that mm-hmm. lines, right? Because what they know was people seeing it created a lot of the sales because what, what is that? Yeah. So 9-11 impacted them and they had to create new products and they recovered from that. And then when the pandemic came along, they thought that that would finish them. But it actually turned out because people were home doing a lot of projects and things like that. End of 2020 was their third best year and last year was their best year ever. And they now make around, you know, 3 million tools a year, and as I said, a third of those export around the world using US labor. So Tim is very proud of that fact that he's been able to create these net new jobs in the United States.
0: Yeah, well, he should be. What a great story. I'm happy that they're doing really well still.
1: Yeah, and there's one part that I really struggled with in this story, especially when we get thinking about the lesson, and there's this perseverance. But there's a certain point where I always struggle with the perseverance one. There's a certain point of when do you cut and run? Like, I got to tell you, he hung in way longer than I ever would have. Seven years of not making a single sale would have been really tough. But, you know, a tribute to him. He believed in it. He persevered. And he hung in there.
0: So he was following this dream and kept pushing on it.
1: It was only in that last year that he went out and he took a job with the selling the welding stuff. No, it was for most of that time. It was every day tinkering and working on this. Now... But I wonder about something, because if he was my customer, one of the problems that you have when you're working through somebody else, so in this case, you're working through a knife company that you want them to sell it, or a tool company and you want them to sell it, or a catalog and you want them to sell it, it's their perception of the consumer. Yeah. And what they actually discovered was Tim was right. Once it got into the consumer's hands, consumers loved it. I would have probably recommended to him at a certain point going, test the market and run your own little ad direct to consumer. Because if they had run a little ad direct to consumer and even made a few sales, that would have given them a lot more power with the catalog company saying, well, we did this little ad and it created this so people are interested in this product.
0: Did he do any sampling and things like that? Like if you got this in the right hands...
1: All he was doing was going to the tool companies. And even when he went to the trade show, he only sold one at the knife trade show. But I think a little bit more of that working one-on-one with the consumer may have sped it along, but who am I to say? He's the one who has built a business making 3 million tools. I haven't. (laughs) If I was working with him, that is the thing I probably would have recommended. Take a little bit of money and run some sort of test market ad and cross your fingers and hope to make a few sales from that and then use that knowledge when you're going to these other companies say, hey, no,
0: it does sell. Yeah, cool story. Great perseverance. Yeah. Oh, man, I'll tell you a huge perseverance. Well, thank you for, for telling us the story of the Leatherman, Steven. All right. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please share us. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave us a big, fat, juicy five star rating and review. And if you have any questions about this or any other podcast episode, email to questions at the Empire